If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In Welsh history, the period that lies between resistance to the English in the medieval era and rapid industrialisation in the 18th and 19th centuries is often forgotten. Yet, says historian Lloyd Bowen, there was a lot going on in Wales in the early modern period that's really crucial to understanding Welsh identity and nationhood. Lloyd joined Ellen Evans recently to explain more. Lloyd, your book is rethinking the history of Wales in the early modern period, the formation, its evolution and the ambiguities of its identity. Can we start by explaining to listeners the period that your book is looking at? So my book is got the dates of circa 1536 to circa 1689. And whenever you see circa in the title of something, it tells you that there is ambiguity and there is uncertainty. It deals then with the 16th and the 17th century broadly. There's problems with trying to compress any kind of national study within dates because nations, in addition to being kind of slippery things in terms of concepts, are slippery things in terms of dates as well. So where you put those boundaries is actually quite important in defining what subject you're looking at. 
But what we are looking at in the 16th and the 17th centuries generally in Britain and in Wales is a period of sort of epochal change, particularly associated with the Reformation, uh, the divorce crisis of Henry VIII, the brick with Rome. In the case of Wales, however, that is accompanied also by another enormous constitutional change, which is the formal union of England and Wales through the so-called Acts of Union, which were passed in 1536 and 1543, which formally unite Wales as a part of England and make it part of the same administrative and judicial process, an integral part of the kingdom. Also, uh, looking forward, we go through the reign of Elizabeth, of course, anti-Catholic scares, the Armada concerns, and so on. And then into the 17th century, we get into another set of epochal changes and upheavals with um, the reign of the Stuarts, the civil wars um, of Charles I. And the end date that I've given is the Glorious Revolution, if you like, And I've chosen that end date as a useful one because I think that early modern Wales becomes something slightly different after that, um, particularly in terms of its settled religious culture, but also its rather more um, troublesome, shall we say, relationship with the king. Jacobitism and so on is quite sort of significant in Wales. But also that's where my expertise peters out. And so <laughs> I'm my my confidence ebbs, shall we say, as we get towards that period. But I, you know, I can sort of justify, I think, um, using these dates as a way of framing what goes on in Wales as a discrete and particular sort of thing at this time. Okay, well, that's a great introduction. Thank you very much. So if we return then to these acts of union, which is obviously where, where you choose to start the book, what do these acts, if we're talking broadly, what do these acts mean for Wales in sort of its legal sense and its sense of self as well? Yeah, that's a very good question and one which I think we've been chewing over and troubling over for almost since they were passed in some ways, but certainly in the modern period, historians have different perspectives on the significance of the Act of Union for a couple of reasons. Some historians believe that the Acts of Union are a real break with the past Other historians have suggested that the Acts of Union see what we might describe as a continuity of trends towards a closer integration with England that we see from the late medieval period. So what we are dealing with here is also slightly contested. But to get to the meat of your question, Wales in the late medieval period was a hodgepodge of different jurisdictions. There was the Principality, which was the old territory, principally in the north and the west of Wales, controlled by the old native houses, the princes of Wales, Llywelyn, Ap Griffith, and Llywelyn the last, and so on, which had been taken by the crown, Edward I, and was controlled by the crown as shires. We have Carnarvon Shire, for example, in this period. And then there's other parts in the east and the south, which are sort of feudal territories ruled over by individual lords, marcher lordships. They have different administrative structures and functions. And these differences were seen to generate lots of um, upheaval. um, uh, There's quite a lot of violence associated with this difference and so on. And so what the Acts of Union kind of do in a way is firstly, they take that idea of the principality ruled over directly by the crown and they extend it across the whole of Wales. They make everything uniform. So in the place of instead having a lordship um, where I am now, uh, called Morganug, there you now have a royal shire called Glamorganshire. 
And that has the same kind of administrative and legal structures as you would find in Carnarvonshire. But it's also the same administrative and legal structures broadly that you would find in Somersetshire or in Kent. So what happens is that um, Wales is integrated within itself, but is also with integrated within the administrative and judicial structures of England. The Acts of Union set up and establish uh, courts called quarter session courts. It establishes uh, through statute something called the Council on the Marches of Wales, which rules over Wales. It joints Wales into England seamlessly, if you like. It also, controversially, states that all of that administration, all of that justice needs to take place through the medium of English. But it is going to be the Welsh gentry who are going to implement this material. It's not sort of colonial administrators from England being settled into these regions. And that's quite important to say, I think. And this is an important initiative which seems to have emerged from the brain of Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's chief minister, as a way of extending Henry's power across the realm uniformly. This was something that they wanted for purposes of simple pacification, if you like, rule and administration. But of course, we need to remember that this is the period of the divorce crisis as well. This is the period of reformation. And so if you're going to do something as you know, seismic as the Reformation, which is ultimately pushed forward by statute. It is pushed forward by Parliament as a legal, a piece of legislation, yeah? You have to have that legislation be uniformly um, accepted through the territories that you control and maintain. So one way of doing that is what he does in the Act of Union, which is essentially to say that you are now subject to the Protestant church legally uh, in the same way as somewhere that's much closer to London, for example, or, or, or you know, in, 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 in uh, Lancashire or wherever that might be. And so the context of the Reformation, the fear and threat of continental invasion is also present here, because if you want to defend your borders, you don't want a weak point with a long coastline. And that's precisely what Wales is. So what you want is for the individuals in somewhere like Pembrokeshire to be as onside with your legislative programme and your interests as you know, somewhere, somebody in Kent, in other words. You want them to subscribe to the same sets of rules. So in many ways, that's what the Act of Union does. It makes everyone play by the same rules, and those rules are emphatically English, and they're emphatically royal. They are Henry's and Cromwell's rules. OK, so that's that's fantastic insight into the driving force behind this united front from the Act of Union. But... I think a point that's really important that comes across in your book right away is that this doesn't lead then to some overnight homogenisation, overnight anglicisation of Wales. It's very much a long process now, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But can you introduce us to that that idea? Indeed. So there isn't some kind of overnight assimilation of Wales into England that is seamless. And where I talk about you want you want somewhere like Glamorgan to be somewhere like Kent, it is manifestly not. That is... It is on paper. That's the that's what Henry and Cromwell want. They they, they want the the laws to be the same as it were, but culturally, um, in uh, linguistically, in so many ways, Wales remains very different to England and is seen as such by the English and importantly by the Welsh themselves. What my book tries to suggest is that it's difficult, however, for us to think in 
modern binary terms very easily as an us and them all of the time in all of these things. There's lots of ambiguities wherein you can, um, for example, stand up and call yourself a proud Welshman, but still be a proud Englishman too. Um, And some people have a problem with seeing how can they hold those two ideas in their head at the same time, but they can do very easily. And it's also important to remember as well that Wales is not just one thing in and of itself in the same way as England isn't one thing in and of itself. Wales remains a place that is um, characterised by contrasts in many ways. Even if you look at somewhere like Glamorganshire, for example, you have an area of lowland with uh, sort of quite a lot of English speakers in it in the south of the county. And as you move into the more northern areas, you get into a very different economic, linguistic and cultural landscape. And again, somewhere like Glamorgan is very different from somewhere like Carnarvonshire in the northwest. And so we need to bear in mind when we think about the contrasts between Wales and England at the same time, that there are geographical and linguistic and cultural contrasts that are um, present within Wales too. And it's also worth mentioning, I think, that there is what we might describe as a social and class aspect to this. I think Cromwell was very canny in what he's doing with the active union in that he is appealing to individuals who are already on the rise. They are already relatively powerful. The so-called echelwir or high men who are the gentry class, which are emerging from the late medieval period. And this gentry class look to the gentry of England with relatively envious eyes. They want some of that economic prosperity that they can see improving their lot. They want, for example, to be able to pass on their estates singularly to their children, as opposed to the old Welsh custom of dividing it up amongst all male heirs. They want um, the kind of power and prestige which comes from, for example, becoming a justice of the peace, which is something that the Acts of Union introduces throughout Wales. And these individuals are also culturally somewhat different from those below them. They want some of what's going on in England, if you like, in terms of the um, prestige and the culture, rather more than your ordinary peasant or labourer on a farm. And so what the Active Union does as well is that it appeals to that class and says, you know, here are those kind of administrative offices, here is the sort of benefits that you've been after. And then it, it asks them to implement the union, which is a very clever thing to do. Because then what you've got is you've got a sort of um, a set of individuals who are on side with you and they are very much on the same page in pushing forward your reforms, but they don't do it in the guise of an alien imposing sort of uh, class. They do it as individuals who have emerged from the same social stratum as those that they will rule. So you've already mentioned that the legal and administrative systems that these gentry are tasked with upholding relegates the position of the Welsh language in Wales. Um, Can we talk more about that phenomenon uh, and I guess the prevailing assumption of how that happened? So there is no question that there is what we might describe as a degree of cultural imperialism within what happens in the uh, the Tudor period, particularly under Henry, but also um, under Edward and to a degree his success, the successes as well. And that cultural imperialism is, if you like, 
sort of centered around the idea of what constitutes a civilized individual, a civilized subject. And when they conceive of a civilized subject, they think of a, a lowland English individual within a nucleated sort of uh, settlement, arable lands, you know, fields of wheat, speaking English and, uh, you know, uh, accessing the sort of crown through that language. When they look at other parts of their realm, they see things which are very different to that. And so part of what the Act of Union is an expression of, it's an expression of that Tudor idea of needing to make all of the realm look and sound the same in some ways. And the language clause of the Act of Union is a very controversial way in which this is done. I, I suppose it's controversial in modern historiography, rather more in some ways than it was contemporaneously. Because what that language clause states is that those individuals who need to um, implement the union will do so through the medium of English, and that um, you know the union is in part designed to ensure that there is no, I, th I can't remember the precise words, but essentially sort of foreign tongue um, in the implementation of this um, settlement. Now, at first blush, that looks you know, exceptionally violent towards the culture. However, when you contrast it with what Tudor policy is like towards Gaelic, for example, in Ireland, we come to recognise by degrees that, in fact, the letter of the law, if you like, was probably much, much, much less um, harsh and much less violent than its implementation. Because whereas, for example, you do indeed have uh, administration and law formally through the medium of English, in practical terms, you're dealing with a population which in many places is 90 to 95% monoglot Welsh speaking. They do not know any other language. And so this could potentially be a recipe for terrible oppression by an alien class. But it, it simply doesn't happen that way. And what we find growing up is a shadow bureaucracy underneath it of translators, of bilingual sort of brokers between the two languages. And it's difficult at times to grasp to what degree what's being set down on the page, let's say in an administrative document, is actually an expression of what was discussed between the parties. It's quite possible that between the parties it was a conversation in English and Welsh, and then the written record that we emerge with is largely in English. I mean, it's quite fascinating, for example, to read a set of depositions before a law court in a suit to do with theft or to do with murder or whatever in North Wales. And we have these lengthy depositions in which somebody with a name like, you know, um, Yayan Aphowell will give a deposition about what they saw and it will be, you know, your deponent went to Flint on this day and saw the individual. And then it will kind of say at the end that they met somebody but didn't understand what they were saying because they were talking in English. And it's only at that point that you realise that this deposition must have been given entirely in Welsh and that then it was translated um, into English. Having said that, there is no question that what the language clause does is that it encourages the use and adoption of English by individuals who want to get on. It ensures that that gentry class will be at the very least bilingual 
And increasingly, as you get towards the later part of the 17th century, more actually monoglot English. This is not to say, however, that the Act of Union is a real break with what's happened before, because even in the late medieval period, aspirant sort of Welsh individuals would be picking up English, going to um, university even perhaps, uh, and learning the language and trying to get on. What the Act of Union does, however, is that it accelerates that process and it certainly decouples Welsh from being a language of power and authority. So I think that we can we can overstate the, the sort of break that the Act of Union represents. Perhaps we can also overstate the violence that it does, but I don't think that we should lose sight of the fact that this was, of its time, a genuine sort of um, means of putting the Welsh language as a kind of second-class language in society for those individuals who wanted to make it, um, particularly in terms of uh, law or politics or administration. Okay, so so that impact said, you've also mentioned how there was a sort of marked difference in its um, tolerance or acceptance in comparison to, say, Cornish or, or Gaelic, for example. Can we talk about the, the role that religion plays in this? It's clearly a, a time of, of massive religious upheaval, isn't it? It is indeed, that's right. And um, a decent part of the book... Um, it deals with a religious question. Initially, I thought we'd managed to do this in one chapter, but, you know, it's such a huge topic. I had to sort of do it in, into two chapters. And, and religion is an important component in talking about what's going on with language because, of course, the Reformation in its Henrician, in its uh, Cromwellian guise, is a culturally English thing. It is you know, the great translations of Tyndale, for example. It is the Bible in English, the prayer book in English. And when you encounter, as I said, Wales, you're coming into a, a significant geographical part of the realm that you want on side in that Reformation struggle. But the problem is, of course, is that the Reformation is being communicated through a language that most of the individuals there cannot understand. Now, it's unusual within Europe uh, at this time for any kind of state uh, religious authority to give any consideration to what we might describe as minority cultures. Usually what has to happen is the accommodation has to come from that minority culture upwards, if you like. And in the initial sort of stages of the Reformation, not a lot of lip service is paid to that cultural uh, sensitivity, if you know what I mean. And we do, in fact, see some uh, individuals like the Cornish rising, um, you, you know, in the prayer book rebellion against what they describe as an English prayer book that they don't understand. Now, interestingly, we, we get r some rumblings from Wales, but we don't sort of see that backlash from Wales. Now, why might that be? Well, part of the reason that I postulate why that might be is because the clerics and the gentry of Wales at this time, they're pretty religiously conservative, but they're also quite culturally sensitive. So they are not sort of imposing, shall we say, a Reformation settlement in the English language in a very hard um, or heavy-handed manner. They are being a little bit more culturally sensitive. Having said that, the Reformation's never really going to put down roots if you need to wait for generation upon generation upon generation to learn English. That is not happening in the 1540s and the 1550s. So 
what grows up is a is a is a body of Welsh Protestants, and they are often individuals who have been um, educated within English universities in in Oxford and Cambridge. Individuals like William Salisbury, who's a a, a Denbyshire man who is very prominent in this process, who begin to argue for the idea that if you want to save the souls of Wales, what you need to do is you need to kind of translate the Reformation. You need to make sure that everyone understands the true word of God as promulgated in this new reformed manner. And so what they begin to press for is the translation of um, important texts into the Welsh language. And Salesbury makes some, um, he's, a, he's quite a prolific publisher, and he makes some appeals and general sort of statements uh, uh, to the king about how this might happen. But he also, for example, produces texts for his countrymen to begin to learn the English alphabet or for them to be able to learn very basic religious texts. And it does seem that there was this kind of ad hoc translation going on in churches but where clerics would probably sort of say the service in English and then perhaps do a kind of an abbreviated version in Welsh afterwards. Um, but then we do come to a very important uh, point, which is in the reign of Elizabeth, we've had a great deal of religious upheaval, of course, with Mary on the throne and religious um, uh, dispute has been rife. And so Elizabeth is looking to um, establish a moderate settlement throughout her kingdom, which she does in 1558-1559. But Wales is still left on the outside of this. And it does seem, particularly through the agency of an individual called Humphrey Lloyd, that they are able to advocate in Parliament for the translation of, initially it looks like they were just going for the New Testament, but ultimately they managed to sort of get a piece of legislation through uh, to translate the Bible uh, and the prayer book into Welsh. And that passes in 1563. And in 1567, we get a version of the New Testament. They didn't have time to sort of complete it all in the Welsh language. And that's a an enormous breakthrough. It might sound like a relatively modest thing to us today. But in fact, what you have here is a non-state language of the same religion elsewhere. And that goes against a lot of the prevailing ideology Think about what was happening in the Act of Union of the time, which says that uniformity and everybody doing the same thing is the way to stability. And then, you know, ultimately that is received rapturously, but there are problems with the translation. You've only got a small portion of the Bible and so on. And so we get in 1588 to um, a remarkably erudite and able cleric uh, named William Morgan, who produces a translation of the whole Bible in 1588. And um, there are translations of the prayer book as well. And some of those are updated in the decades afterwards. But that 1588 publication is, a, you know, it, it does for the Welsh language in many ways what the King James Bible sort of does for English. It produces a text which everyone recognises as a remarkable sort of expression and translation of biblical truth and of majestic language. And it also does something, I think, rather more subtle. It says here is a language that is capable of encompassing these highest aspirations of man at this time. The greatest thing that you can aspire to be is an informed Protestant. And so over time, with these sorts of texts in their hand, what clerics are able to do and what individuals to a degree are able to do as well is to have access to the scriptures in their own vernacular 
on a weekly basis. And what that does is it is it, it enshrines Welsh, if you like, as part of the cultural landscape and stops the kind of erosive processes that happened to a degree with Gaelic, but particularly with Cornish, which never really managed to get um, any scriptures in its own language in a meaningful form in this period. And interestingly, when you look at a map of Cornwall that has the sort of linguistic lines of Cornish speaking on it, you see a rapid sort of retreat westwards of that language over time as it retreats into its redoubts, if you like, because what's happening in Cornish churches is that the English prayer book, the English service, the English religious texts are being repeated week in, week out. And that becomes the sort of language of, um, it becomes the language of God, but it becomes the language of everyday people as well. So the what you experience then is the kind of cultural imperial ideology of the Henrician period gets not just sort of undermined, but in some ways it becomes inverted, that they come to recognise, in fact, this will make the Welsh good and loyal subjects as well. We don't need to have linguistic uniformity simply to have loyal Protestants on our Western flank. And so it's an absolutely critical part of the, uh, of the period. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Right, so you have that assimilation in one sense and that assertion of a distinct identity in another. It's, it's, it's a complex and, and fascinating picture for sure. Um, if we can turn then, I'm just going to move us on slightly, we can turn then to this idea of Wales and how it is broadly 
relating to the monarchs and the period that you're talking about, because there is there's a there's a key point slightly before the period we're looking at here, isn't there, where it becomes a really important, uh, significant thing for Wales. That's right. Yeah. Um, I've always been interested in um, the civil wars in Wales in the mid 17th century and Wales is a very royalist place, and it's quite difficult to explain and understand in some ways. And what you need to do is, I think you need to do a, a bit of the kind of archaeology of Welsh history in this period and go back a little further. And what you arrive at is the idea of, um, of, of a Welsh leader, shall we say, that is quite deeply embedded in Welsh culture from the medieval period. There is this sense in Wales that they have been defeated by the English and so on, but that there will be a deliverer that will come and kind of free them from bondage and so on. It's a prophetic idea which sounds ephemeral, but in fact it becomes very deeply woven into the fabric of Welsh society at this time. And there have been a couple of you know individuals who put their hands up to be this deliverer. Um, the most sort of uh, famous, of course, is Owen Glendur, who claimed to be the sort of prophesied deliverer of the Welsh. However, when we get to um, the uh, late 15th century, we have um, Henry Tudor, who um, is in France, but is a claimant to um, the English throne. And Henry Tudor is not particularly Welsh, but he's sufficiently Welsh to be going on with. So he is a, I, I think he's one quarter Welsh, something like that. And, and of course, he was born in Wales as well. And the bardic um, poets of Wales, the kind of memorialists and songsters who are rather more than just poets, they are keepers of the national memory in some senses. They are really enthusiastic about Henry Tudor as a potential leader. And this mantle of the potential deliverer comes to settle upon Henry Tudor because, of course, that name, Tidir, actually comes from Anglesey. They can sort of uh, justifiably say that Welsh blood is running through the, his veins and so on. And so he lands significantly in Pembrokeshire with a with an invading force in uh, 1485 to meet Richard III um, and appears to gather quite a number of Welsh supporters in his journey to Bosworth Field. And when he becomes installed as Henry VII in 1485, you have the Welsh, um, you know, claiming that here we have uh, our, the, the deliverer that we were, we were sort of promised come to pass. Now, in the more kind of high-flying poetry of the period. He's supposed to bestow all of these sort of gifts and benisons on Wales, liberate them, whatever that might mean. And, you know, the, the dividend is pretty small when you come to it. But when you sort of look at the register of the poetry, and when you look at what um, ordinary individuals seem to say about the monarchy in Wales, it actually seems that um, Henry manages to solidify the idea of the Tudors as this Welsh line that is a genuine point of pride, loyalty and enthusiasm amongst the Welsh. And so then what you can have is you can have something like the Act of Union and something like the Reformation being presented not simply as an administrative reform on the one hand and a religious change on the other, but as some of the promised gifts which these bearers have now indeed brought to the Welsh. And so if you're a gentleman um, who is now a JP and you're enthusiastic about the Protestant settlement, you're also 
uh, enormously indebted to the line of the Tudors, which has brought that to you. And this doesn't just seem to be a um, an elite idea as well. There does seem to have been a genuinely popular sense that monarchy, and particularly monarchy descended from this line, is something that is particularly they use the word British in this period often as a synonym for Welsh. So it's particularly British. This is a, a line descended of the British blood. And so we owe it our loyalty and we owe it our support and enthusiasm. And so throughout the period you get, for, for example, with Elizabeth, you get you know poems addressed to Elizabeth as um, the silken one in Welsh, the one who is um, given us the Bible in Welsh because it, the translation comes out under her reign, for example, who defends the area from the raging armada. And all of these sort of benisons have been given to the Welsh by this line. So they become very enthusiastic royalists and monarchists, for want of a better word. And even when you get an entirely different house, the Stuarts, coming to the throne in 1603. The Welsh are master manipulators of family trees and pedigrees. And so they are even able to say, well, the Stuarts, they might look Scottish, but actually, if you look backwards, they are, they are descended ultimately from Welsh princes and then back to mythical figures, um, particularly those who came from Troy, in fact, and landed in Britain. And so Brutus is the, the ultimate progenitor of the British people who gave the name Britain and so on. And so even James I then is hailed as somebody who is um, a, a line of British descent that the Welsh can particularly get on board with. And one of James's pet projects is to unite well, he's thinking England and Scotland principally. Wales comes as a bit of an added bonus, a bit of an afterthought, to be honest with you. But the Welsh love this idea. They love the idea of Britain come again, of that ancient land that was once theirs, a new efflorescence of that Britishness. And so I would suggest that a characterization of Wales in this period, an important part of the character, is its uh, loyalty to the throne and its enthusiasm for monarchy of all stripes. So we've talked about the, the gentry. We've obviously talked about Wales's connection to the royals of the time. I wonder if we can turn to what you were able to surface about um, policy and, and the idea of people, for want of a better word, lower down the scale hold, holding office. How much were they able to represent Welsh interests on a, on a British stage? So it is difficult to... Um, access, shall we say, what non-elite individuals are thinking and doing at this time. It's difficult because of the nature of the source materials that we have that survive. What we can say, I think, is that where we can access those individuals, they don't look particularly different from those above them, shall we say. There doesn't seem to be a class divide that is, um, you know, that there is a, a great sort of a Republican or um, anti-English sentiment amongst the Welsh any more than there is amongst the gentry order. Uh, what we can say is that, um, you know, where we can see the Welsh talking to one another in court records, where they often surface, um Rather, because many were illiterate, they don't leave the sorts of records, but some of their depositions will survive, that sort of thing. Where we can access that material, we find them talking relatively positively about things like 
Britishness, British history, British identity, about them being jointed into the throne. You know, when individuals in the Civil War, for example, speak about the Welsh, they speak about them as ignorant, but they talk about them as ignorant largely because they're following the king. When the king is looking for infantrymen, he gets a lot from Wales. It's called the nursery of the king's infantry. And we know that a number of these individuals are not simply dragooned into service by the gentlemen. They are, in fact, going voluntarily. And that must be, I think, because they're partaking in a similar culture. We also know, for example, that they respond enthusiastically to ideas of ancient British heritage. Some individuals tell us that, um, you know, a, a, a clergyman who was uh, lauding the, um, the the Saxon derivation of England, the idea of the English from the Saxons, was hounded out of his parish because they believed that he was um, against the British uh, church, shall we say, the idea of an old British kingdom. So um, ordinary individuals are partake, shall we say, in a shared culture for the most part with those above them. There are obviously differences. Welsh language is far more prevalent, monoglot Welsh language is far more prevalent. But even there, you need to be aware of traders. We need to be aware of individuals. There's a lot more mobility at this time than I think we think about. And they need to be able to interact with um, English individuals. Uh, they also need to interact with English individuals in somewhere like um, Cardiff or in Wrexham, for example, where we know, again, largely from court records, the people were able to conduct, um, you know, businesses. They were able to um, have seasonal migrations into England and so on when they didn't really have a great deal of the language. And interestingly, one of Sales, William Salesbury's early books, A Dictionary in English and Welsh, published in 1547, he actually states explicitly there that one of the reasons that he's published this little handbook is for individuals um, sort of along the Welsh uh, borders to be able to converse with one another and to increase their trades and make sort of better economic prosperity. So it's difficult for us to access lower down the social scale, what we can say is that on occasion, the governors were anxious about potential Catholics and potential opponents of the Reformation settlement amongst the ordinary population. But I guess what we have to recognise as well is that that never actually came to pass into some kind of spontaneous insurrection or anything um, of the sort. Where we see spontaneous political or religious activity from the lower orders, usually it's directed towards a more loyalist rather than a, an opponent's sort of stance towards the monarchy and the church of the day. So our capacity to talk about these individuals is limited by our source materials. But even then, we can say some important things, I think, about the character of Welsh society. So we've only begun to touch on many of these themes that you bring together in your book, religion, uh, relation to the monarchy, um, activity and, and policy and in, in sort of gentry lives. Can we talk more broadly about the tension that you found that existed with the idea of this closeness exacerbating, in other ways, a sense of difference and the beginnings of an emergence of Welsh identity? Certainly. In this period, I would say that there, there is never a point at which the Welsh conceive of themselves as anything other than Welsh. <clears throat> I think what's interesting is to see the way that they manage to hold on to a number of ideas about themselves at the same time, which we might consider to be contradictory, that they can be uh, good Carnarvonshire men, good Welshmen, Britons and Englishmen simultaneously. 
they could be Protestants as as well. And that, that encapsulates a great number of ideas. So I think that the idea of a Welsh identity is present throughout. One of the things that we need to grapple with, I guess, is the extent to which that idea of a Welsh identity is formulated in opposition to England. And that is present at all times as well. It's It can verge into what we might describe as a more ethnic sort of antagonism. There are glimpses of that, certainly. But what I find surprising in many ways is how that sense of difference does not, in fact, become instrumentalised and mobilised in a nationalistic, for you know, a reductive kind of way, manner against England. And I think very important in that is this sense of assimilation, both administratively, but also religiously, and in terms of the monarchy. Having you know, having having said all that, of course, what we're dealing with here is a complex territory over a number of um, decades, in, indeed centuries. And so there is no question that what you have emerging over time is the degree to which the upper echelons of Welsh society are increasingly drawn to what we might describe as strictly English modes of conduct and strictly English modes of speech. And so they are enticed, for example, by the increasing prevalence of Bath as a place where you go to um, you know, in the summer to take the waters, but also to be a part of polite society. They are increasingly enticed by going to London for the season. And they are increasingly individuals who partake in a culture which they see as very different from those lower down the social order. And then what we begin to see is those lower down the social order manufacturing a language to talk about alien, exploitative, anglicised landlords. So that is something that we see towards the end of the period and gives you a glimpse, I think, of where some of those kinds of political ideas are headed in the future, which is to say that, if you remember, I spoke about Wales not having a class of sort of colonial administrators imposed upon them, as happened, for example, in Ireland. You could say, as we get into the 18th century, that that is what does seem to emerge from those lower down the social order. That, in fact, what is happening is that there is a, um, a, a social fissure that opens up between an anglicised ruling class, which is no part of this Welsh identity that we are um, talking about here. And because of that, significant antagonism is articulated against those. And um, there is also the fact that um, the Welsh bardic class, the class of poets who have been um, you know, very important since the late medieval period in, um, and beforehand, in fact, in Welsh culture, that they are looking at this world of what used to be patronage from indigenous sort of gentry classes. And they are writing uh, elegies which are saying, you know, now the world is not with the poets. It is a cold and dreary land and their number are declining significantly. And in fact, effectively extinguished by the later 17th century. It has become a culturally hostile place for them. That's not to say the Welsh poetry dies out, the Welsh language culture dies out and so on. But it is to acknowledge that we get what we might describe as the beginnings of a 
a cultural clash that becomes quite quite nasty. I wouldn't want to overstate this too much. Those impulses of loyalty and Britishness continue into the 18th and 19th centuries. But I think you're right to highlight the fact that what we are seeing in some areas is a definite sense that, um, you know, culture and I, cultural clashes and I, identity politics, for want of a better word, um, you know, is, is something that is part of the local landscape. And so do you think we we need to be careful then with projecting such antagonism that comes later back onto this very period we're talking about? I think one of the problems in thinking about early modern Wales is it's in the title, right? It's early modern. So we've got modern. So that's kind of what we're looking for. It's always on the transition towards something else. And what I try to suggest in this book is actually let's think about this period in and of itself and not try and see it through the distorting sort of hindsight of modern priorities and politics. That's quite difficult uh, to do, I think, because what we tend to assume is that Wales in the past has the sort of the seeds and the kernels of what it will become. And of course it does, except those seeds may be just that. They may be only seeds and and relatively, uh, not insignificant, but relatively small part of the picture. And so I think it is difficult to come to this period with a set of assumptions which says Wales is immediately and undeniably different from England, and therefore that equals some form of antagonism, some form of um, you know, corrosive relationship. And in fact, when you look at um, the evidence, I think what you see is a remarkable period of, in some ways, a, this, this union is, is remarkably successful. It is um, remarkable to read individuals standing up in the House of Commons from uh, one of the most culturally Welsh parts of Wales in, in the northwest and to say, I am an Englishman. Now, that strikes somebody today as as you know, a, a, a real dissonance, a real problem. What's important, I think, is to try and get into the head of that individual and recognise that he didn't necessarily see it in those kind of terms. So I think that there is, there is always things like satire. The English are always satirising the Welsh. They, they speak strangely. They, they're bumpkins. You know, when they come to London, they don't really know what's going on. Um, that's always there. And the Welsh are always there sort of saying, you know, he's a stupid English rogue. The Welsh, uh, the English are there saying he's a Welsh thief. You know, there is tension, right? But there is tension in any society over time. And you reach for some of those identifiers frequently. What's more telling, I think, is that you don't get the kind of Western rising of 1549 with a Cornish rise in Wales, that you don't get any kind of major rebellion against the English, that you don't get any kind of organised anti-English activity in Wales at this time. In fact, what you get are lots of people singing the praises of an English monarch and an idea of togetherness, of Britishness. And I think that in some ways we have such tumultuous politics today I think that it's quite interesting to reach back and to see how, in fact, whereas we reflexively think of earlier societies as antagonistic when they are when there's difference, in fact, what we have is an expression of Britishness, which could be held in tension with and alongside quite strong 
um, advocacy for both being English, being Welsh, and indeed, in many cases, being what they call a, a Cambro-Britain, uh, an individual who is Welsh, but part of something much bigger and unproblematically so. So I think if you're going to read back into, into the past, you know, it's, it would be interesting in some ways to read it back through that prism of what we might describe as a degree of sort of a, a cooperation, a degree of the capacity to hold different ideas of the self in your mind at the same time. Yes, that that complicated, complex picture is such a, a fascinating one, and and your book, rethinking the history of Wales, there's so much we haven't we haven't talked about in this period in terms of Wales's own sense of its medieval, its pre-medieval history. Um, there's a lot more uh, religious tension in the book and religious dissent as well. We'll we'll have to sort of leave it there, Lloyd. But is there anything else that you'd like listeners to know about your book before we wrap up? I think that I sort of finished the book with, um, uh, you know, a, a, a bit of a plea, I guess, that I understand in many ways why early modern Wales, don't even know what to call it properly, is, shall we say, not particularly on people's radar. Um, it is because of some of the things that we've spoken about today. When you're in the late medieval period, you have this kind of great resistors of English occupation. You have your kind of, um, you know, Llewell in the last. You have your Owain Glyndwr. And then in the modern period, you have nationalist movements and so on. You have that kind of antagonism again. And of course, you have the great industrializations. And I suppose when I'm teaching, for example, and you see where the student body gravitates towards, it's towards those sorts of poles. And when you see popular interest, uh, it gravitates towards those poles. And I do recognise and understand that. And I guess what I would like to suggest is that um, there's a lot more to this period than just a hiatus in between those. There's a lot more of interest of the kinds of things that we're talking about today that still has a great deal of drama, a great deal of tension, a great deal, I think, to, that speaks to modern uh, day considerations and concerns. Wales doesn't stop being interesting in the 16th and 17th centuries. I guess that that's what I would leave people with. Absolutely. Well, I, I do agree with that, having having read your book, and I encourage our listeners to do so as well. It's Rethinking the History of Wales, Early Modern Wales, circa 1536 to circa 1689. And thank you so much, Lloyd, for talking to us about it today. Dilchenbauer. Dilchenbauer. It's been a real pleasure, Anna. Thank you. That was Lloyd Bowen. His book is published by the University of Wales Press and is out now. You can find out more about the history of Wales on our website at historyextra.com forward slash locations forward slash Wales. And for more on Welsh identity, check out the radio series This Union on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.